So I, I think understanding TMD is about understanding that it's a spectrum of care from joint-related right down to muscular-related. And patients are somewhere in the middle of that. Probably about 90% of the patients I see are down at that muscular end, as you say. Welcome to the Protrusive Dental Podcast, the forward-thinking podcast for dental professionals. Join us as we discuss hot topics in dentistry, clinical tips, continuing education, and adding value to your life and career. With your host, Jazz Gulati. What happens to our TMD patients when conservative care fails? Like you've done your patient education, you've given them the best occlusal appliance, you've worked alongside your TMJ physiotherapist, you've been through exercises, and you've even counseled them about the importance of, of recognizing awake bruxism, which is a huge player. And all this stuff isn't working. What happens next? Well, depending on your diagnosis, the next step for some patients will be to see a maxillofacial surgeon, but not any old maxillofacial surgeon. You ideally want to send someone who's got interest in uh, TMJ and TMD. So I've got today a uh, private physician, private maxillofacial surgeon in the UK who exclusively treats TMD. So what this guy doesn't know about surgery and TMJ and what happens in the latter parts once conservative care fails, how the referrals manage, when should we refer these patients, which patients are suitable for referral to MaxFax once conservative care fails. Let me give you a clue. If your primary diagnosis is muscular, then really, you really need to go and exhaust conservative care and the physio. And by the way, most TMDs are of a muscular nature. They're myalgia, they're myofascial pain, and there's no real scope for surgery when it comes to muscles that are upset. That's when we really need to give the best conservative care we can and involve a pain specialist sometimes, potentially Botox, and lots more which we will discuss. Now, if you want to learn more about occlusal appliances, bruxism as a GDP, as a restorative dentist who wants to just not be afraid of doing a TMJ exam when the patient comes in an emergency slot and they're complaining of pain from their, uh, their jaw or they got like a, a facial pain and you take a step back and you think, whoa, I have no idea what I'm doing here, then I've set up a course just for you. You guys know that my flagship course is Splint Course. So it's www.splintcourse.com. I've just relaunched it. It's got hundreds of very happy delegates all over the world and we're continually it's like a little family little community on Facebook uh, we have these monthly meetups uh, on Zoom but the entire course is online on demand dentists from Singapore Estonia uh, Ghana recently as well India all over the world UK loads from the UK and US uh, have joined the course and now are implementing knowledge that so they can help their patients with bruxism management and TMD and relaxing the muscles and just doing a good examination of the joints and muscles. I initially set this uh, course up because I was so confused many years ago about which splint do you give when? How do you give a really good Michigan splint? How do you actually adjust a soft splint so it's got some sort of occlusion, right? A lot of times soft splints, we've been guilty of just, you know, grab and go and just give it to the patient and let them leave and claim your 12 days or, or whatever it might be. But actually there's a little trick that you can do to get some occlusion on your splint. Now I cover all of this in a lot of depth with clinical lectures and, and visual uh, animations, PDF downloads, you name it. I've really, really made something I'm super proud of. And I know that's gonna help you save time, be less stressed, and actually be able to charge appropriately for your appliances with confidence. 
But don't take my word for it. Have a listen to Aoife Egan, one of my lovely Spin Course delegates. I admire Aoife so much because she demonstrates that it's all about implementation. Knowledge is nothing about implementation. So I want to congratulate Aoife for applying the knowledge from Spin Course. Uh, have, have a listen to her experiences. My experience with undergraduate and postgraduate was very similar and in both cases and I felt it was lacking. So um, when I started Jazz's Splint course and I was going through all the modules, I just found it such a welcome shift in thinking. And I was um, really, really delighted to, to have come across it because I felt that it was the first time I was finally going to be able to really apply and get kind of actually use all of the information. It was very logical compared to the theory-based approach that I had experienced before that. Um, I, so I started this course in uh, December, I think, and uh, so I kind of went, got through all of the information by about, I think, the end of January. And then as it happened, I was going coming back from maternity leave at that stage. So in the last six weeks or so, I've applied so much of the principles from Jazz's course already. And it's just been great. You know, just immediately my diagnosis has been better. Even something as simple as, you know, before I had always just written like, you know, as part of my notes, extra oral examination, TMJ, and then a note about it. But now I actually understand what it means if there is a click or, you know, I just have found my notes are more detailed and I'm not just kind of noting it and then doing nothing about it, but I'm actually kind of acting on my diagnosis a little bit more. Sorry. <laughs> All right. Um, I just hope uh, Jess hears this now. Ladies, I heard you loud and clear. I love to hear that. That's fantastic. Thank you so much, Aoife. Now, the biggest excuse I hear from colleagues, they, they message me and tell me all the time, Jazz, I'd love to do your course, but I don't have the time. I can't find time in my busy life to sit in front of a laptop and watch these videos. As, as, as fascinating and engaging as you make it, Jazz, I don't have the time. But you've made the time to listen to this podcast. And I realized this uh, afterwards when some of my delegates uh, were not making as much progress. I want you to do well. I want you to make progress. So then I decided to put make the course as a podcast as well, because I know a lot of people can, while they're commuting, make time for education. And therefore, now a new feature of the course is that you can download the MP3s of the modules and listen while you drive or on the train or chopping your onions or whatever. And you gain most of the knowledge like that. You reference it with some of the videos. You have the course ebook and all the PDF forms and gives you a new way of learning through the medium of podcast. So if that's right up your street, head on over to splintcourse.com and enroll today. Before we join Professor Andrew Sidebottom, the maxillofacial surgeon we're talking to today, I've got your protrusive dental pearl. Uh, and this is a video I posted on the protrusive dental community. So if you're not part of the protrusive dental community on Facebook, search it up, join. It's a lovely little community, very helpful. I'm proud of it. One of my colleagues, uh, Maria, posted a case whereby she gave full coverage appliance upper and lower, full coverage, like a retainer and a full coverage upper appliance to a patient, and she developed an anterior open bite. And so this happens, right? So it's not just the small appliances and over eruption and that kind of stuff, and I've talked about it before, but a patient now has an AOB. So inspired by that uh, problem, I saw it as an opportunity to make an educational video. It's an eight minute video I made to, to walk you through with a patient, live patient there, exactly how to screen which patients are at risk for getting a bite change or an AOB after an occlusal appliance and how 
you can minimize that risk. So it's a free eight minute video you can watch. It's, I've, I put it on, I've pinned it to the top as like a featured content on the Protrusive Dental community. So you can check that out as your Protrusive Dental Pearl. Otherwise, I hope you enjoyed this podcast. And I'll catch you in the outro. Professor Andrew Sidebottom, welcome to the Protrusive Dental Podcast. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Jazz, how are you? I'm great. I literally just came back from uh, Porto on holiday. We took 16 dentists uh, to learn vertical preparations with uh, George Andre Cardoso in Portugal, which was amazing. I'm feeling a little bit tired. I've got a few ulcers. I've lost my voice a little bit, typical. Uh, but hey, I'm, I'm good. I heard about your weekend before we hit recording, yeah. uh, very family orientated, which was nice. Like, how do how do Maxfax people, how do you get time to, to, to have a life? A serious question. Like You guys must be so, so busy. How do you manage it? So, I mean, I, I think I stepped down from my NHS work um, 18 months ago and just do private work now, which has given me an extra day a week. But yeah, it was chaos before and doing a one in four on call was was hard work. But uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm enjoying life a bit more now. I'm, I'm so glad to hear that. And uh, please give us a flavor. And I want to know as well. With going private in OMFS, like you, do you have your own niche within OMFS? Uh, and what is, what are the type of surgeries that um, that you have niched into? Okay, so uh, as an NHS consultant for twenty years, I developed a practice in TMD and facial deformity. Um, I became one of the go-to people for TMJ problems from other OMFS around the UK and Europe, um, and. The, the facial deformity side of that fits in nicely. Um, in addition, all of us uh, kind of do wisdom teeth and, and dental alveolar work as well. And I still love doing the, the basic dental alveolar surgery. I just like getting my hands wet. Um, so, so that's great doing that. And so my private work, uh, probably about 60% is, is TMD based. And then 40% is general max fac and facial cosmetic surgery. I'm so excited to have the chat. Now that you told me the background in terms of how much uh, work you do with TMD, it's right up my street. I, uh, I'm sure I'm going to learn so much from you. And we are all us. You've got uh, a platform of GDPs here all over the world who tend to listen to Protrusive Dental Podcasts because they're a little bit geeky. They want a little bit more. They like the nitty gritty details. Uh, and they have an interest in some way uh, in occlusion or, or TMD. Or that's why they start listening to it. That's why they clicked on this episode. So let's scratch that itch for so many listening. So first, uh, first, just tell us where you work. Tell us where you work and how, how did you get into that niche of TMD? Because uh, most dentists I speak to want to stay as far away from it as possible. And, and I think that's true of most Max Fax surgeons as well. Um, yes. we, we, what did I, how did I get into it? I, I kind of got into it almost not quite by default, but um, I, at dental school I went to a very interesting lecture by a chap called Richard Juniper, who at the time was a consultant in Oxford and specialised in TMJ. And I was really intrigued by his kind of anatomical understanding of how the joint works and the relationship of the lateral pterygoid to the disc and the, the head of the condyle. And then went off to do my SHO jobs, ended up in Birmingham with a chap called Bernie Speculand, who was one of the first guys in the UK doing TMJ replacement and TMJ surgeries. Liverpool, as a, as a senior SHO, none of the consultants was interested in TMD. So I got dumped with all of that work by the seniors and thought I ought to start learning about it. Went back to med school, um, married an orthopedic surgeon, and by default, therefore, you've got to know a little bit about joints, um, and went through, did my higher surgical training in Liverpool with a guy called John Cooper, who, again, was interested in TMD, and came to Nottingham and just 
that was part of one of my areas of interest, along with facial deformity, craniofacial surgery, and just developed the, the TMJ stuff along those lines and, and set up a specialist clinic literally in my first week in 2001 as a MaxFact surgeon in, in Nottingham. And having the time to spend with the patients at the first visit when they get referred to secondary care is the key to management of these patients. It's spending time with them. That is brilliant. I love your story and how one stemmed from another and the fact that you married an orthopedic surgeon, I think gives you an edge for sure. It totally gives you an edge. I, I love that. The kind of themes we're exploring today if we were to achieve two things from this uh, episode, is one, to gain an insight. What happens when us dentists have really exhausted conservative care and they come to you? And what are the types of diagnoses that um, lend themselves to a better prognosis? What kind of surgeries do you do? I mean, in this short time, we can only cover so much. I know you're coming to visit us on the live splint course, which I'm really excited for you to, to meet the delegates who have taken a real interest in the conservative management TMD. So really excited to see you in May and June for that. Uh, but the first question is, what do you think, what is the level of care that you want general dentists to have to have carried out before that patient is referred to you? Because, uh, and, and please you tell me what percentage of referrals that come up, come to you, you sort of bounce back and say, actually, there's, there's no indication for surgery. And then do you sometimes just take over and do the job that perhaps you feel that our colleagues should have done? Yeah. So one of my roles at the moment is as the uh, East Midlands advisor for NHS England, um, oral surgery. So I'm the MCN lead for oral surgery. And one of the things that we've done is send out a missive to all the dentists in the region about what they should be doing for patients in primary care for the initial management of TMD. The guys in Derby audited the referrals before and after that and found very little change in practice and that round about 80% of patients hadn't had a basic rest anti-inflammatories bite splint protocol before they came into hospital. Um, the uh, Royal College of Surgeons guide suggests that patients should have a six months of conservative treatment prior to referral in. I don't agree with that. I think that misses some of the patients that will benefit from early surgery, particularly younger patients with an acute severe restriction of opening. Um, so I think a basic Rest, anti-inflammatories, reassurance that the majority of patients, even that we see in secondary care, don't go on to need surgery, and, and reassurance that clicking is something which about a third of the population have anyway, and most people with clicking don't get problems, so don't worry about the noises that are coming from your joint. We don't worry about noises in our knees and hips and shoulders, so we shouldn't worry as much about t TMJ noises as some people stress. Uh, and and basically to just give that reassurance that you know that the biggest thing I, I would advise everyone not to say is never tell a patient they've got arthritis. Because mm. as soon as you say that, they assume that they're going to need a joint replacement. Mm -hmm. Especially if they start Googling it. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> which which they do. You know, TMD patients that I've had, which eventually um, watch my dental podcast videos. Can you believe it? They, they you know, my my podcasts are meant for dentists, and they they search these terms which only a dentist would ever search, right? Yeah. And then they end up with me, and they come, and then I've seen a, a few of them, and that's kind of like how I've also um, you know made a, a sub interest in, in TMD. But my my mission was always to be really good with conservative care because I yeah. can treat so many of my patients with really good conservative care. Uh, and one thing maybe we'll touch on is is Giving 
and includes appliance with intent based on diagnosis. Uh, and, and, and with that comes, uh, you know, one important consideration that yes, you know, you shouldn't say arthritis and stuff uh, to, a, to a patient because they, they're worried. But loads of these patients, their diagnosis is in the muscular region. Yeah. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but you know, they don't, there's, there's going to be no indication for surgery for something that's muscular and that needs rest. So just please expand on what percentage of referrals that you get are perhaps muscular and they're not, um, you know, osteoarthritic or uh, intracapsular that you feel as a hang on a minute, we need to just go back and, and, and uh, break things down, go back to basics and, and apply conservative care. Yeah. So I, I think understanding TMD is about understanding that it's a spectrum of care from joint related right down to muscular related. And patients are somewhere in the middle of that. Probably about 90% of the patients I see are down at that muscular end, as you say. So of the patients that get referred to us in secondary care, around about the easiest thing to think of with, with TMD management in secondary care, which I tell all my trainees, is it's an 80% disease. So 80% of the patients we see in secondary care get better with conservative measures. 80% of patients who go on to have arthroscopy get better with that. Of those 80%, 10% don't need further intervention despite not getting better with arthroscopy because it becomes very clear that they haven't got a joint-related pathology. Of the remaining 10% that go on to open surgery, 80% of those get better. And of those that don't, when they've got significant pathology in the joint that go on to joint replacement, you know, you look at that, and of those 100 patients who have come in initially to secondary care, probably one will go on to open surgery, and about 0.1 will go on to need a joint replacement. So very few. So as a surgeon, you know, MaxFact surgeons aren't interested in it because you don't operate on the majority of your patients. That's an interesting take, actually. If, if, if it was more surgical-led, maybe uh, MaxFax would have more of an interest in it. But, you know, we, we agree that there's so much uh, general dentists can do with good um, conservative care, perhaps teaming up with a local physiotherapist uh, yeah. and following a hierarchy of things. Uh, we're, we're both uh, well acquainted with uh, Karina Panchal, who, again, will also be there uh, in the dates in May and June on the, on the live version. So it, it will be great to, to actually put our heads together and, uh, and see how can, we, how can we help our GDPs give better conservative care? And that's essentially what it's about. And, and with that, uh, Prof, I want you to say there's a rule that one of my mentors taught me, about PDQ. Uh, and, and just uh, as you said, with the, the, the clicking and lots of patients get concerned and worried uh, and you should just reassure them that clicking is, is, is normal, PDQ. So it's only really an issue uh, in any real diagnosis within TMD, which is an umbrella term, uh, if, it, if it gives a patient pain, if it... Um, PD means, uh, let's see, dysfunction, okay, so they're not able to, to, to chew properly, or quality of life. If it doesn't satisfy any of those three, then really there's no, there's no reason to, to actually in intervene at all, not even with conservative care, really, if it's not giving any of those. Yeah. When any of those three happen, then, of course, conservative care. Uh, and if that fails, which 20% of time it may do, but to be fair, I think if we only had a group of patients who had muscular symptoms only, uh, and you gave them really good conservative care, and and we can get into a heated debate maybe, but not just give them a soft splint. Okay, we can talk about that uh, towards the end. Then I think we will go beyond eighty percent. Some of the literature says that, but the general literature, seventy to ninety percent patients will get better, even just without an appliance, just giving them some advice and rest. A physio, no appliance, will do well, and, and we know that. What are the kind of cases that you think? 
dentists should, and it's really interesting you mentioned, should be referring to you without conservative care first because you feel as though, okay, this patient um, is just going to be worse off in six months with conservative care and they actually need early surgical intervention. Can you describe those type of cases? Yeah. So the diagnoses. So, so. Are you enjoying the Protrusive Dental Podcast? Well, allow me to deliver you even more value. You can now download the iOS or Play Store app for free. Just search Protrusive on your app platform. Now, if you're a true Protrusive and you want to support the podcast, you want to claim CPD for all the listening and watching that you do. You want to get access to exclusive clinical walkthrough videos to make dentistry tangible, as well as a premium newsletter, access to the Protrusive Vault, and the ability to download all the clinical videos and podcast videos so you can view them offline later. You can get all of that for less than 15 tax-deductible dollars per month. So what are you waiting for? Download the Protrusive app now on iOS or Android for absolutely nothing. We've worked so hard on this Protrusive team, and I know you're just going to love it. Now back to the main episode. It, it, it's a term that I'd, I'd be amazed if any of your listeners come across, which is called anchor disc phenomenon. And, and basically what that is, is with repeated compression of the joint, and one of the things that we're increasingly aware of is that TMD is related to repeated compression microtrauma of the joint from clenching or grinding, usually clenching rather than grinding. And and to put it in a simple term, they squeeze out the fluid of the joint. So mm-hmm. if you if you wash out the engine oil, the engine seizes. And what happens with the joint is that you lose the the glide component. So your initial rotation of about two, two and a half centimeters in the lower joint space continues. The upper joint space loses its viscosity, it loses its lubrication and sticks. And so the disc is stuck against the fossa. You don't get the glide, so they stick at round about 25 millimeters. And anyone with that onset suddenly, so they're getting on fine, suddenly they come in, I can only open my mouth two fingers or less, needs urgent referral because those are the ones that do extremely well with an early washout, an early arthrocentesis, and do extremely badly if you delay and delay and delay. So those patients who are delayed beyond one year, their outcomes are about 50% success, whereas those that are treated within three months, you're looking at about 95% success. Wow. Wow. I mean, and, and these patients are different from that patient in their 40s or 50s who's yeah. always had clicking, 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 and then sometimes they get the, the lock, which they can fix, and then eventually they get down to two fingers. And we suspect a disc displacement without reduction. So the disc yeah. is not able to come back on the condyle. The condyle cannot translate as well. Uh, and that's a different beast to the kind where they get, like you, like you described, more sudden. Uh, and, and that makes sense. Now, when it comes to patients who have intracapsular disorders and they have that disc displacement, so the, the lock jaw, the closed lock, uh, and the, the jaw deviates to or deflects to one side even, and they cannot open, they're in pain, acute pain, where do you see the success in conservative care in there? Because um, this is where I give reduced prognosis to my patients. I can still help a lot of patients. Uh, and actually, funnily enough, soft splint uh, with a the, the, um, bite raising can help those patients to, to recapture and then various things. But the longer that's happened, the, the worse prognosis. Is there any evidence that early surgical intervention in those kind of cases can help? Or what would you advise general dentists to do in those acute disc displacements without reduction? Yeah. So I think it, a lot of this is dependent on understanding the basic, basic kind of pathophysiology of what's going on. So what you've got with disc displacement is that you've got compression of the joint. And if you compress 
the joint often enough, it starts getting thin and the retrodiscal tissue stretch and then the disc slips forward. So when you open, you open, you go past the back end of the disc and then you get the click as it relocates in position. The click can also occur because the retrodiscal tissues thicken in, ad in adaptation to the increased load and that can also click over those. So those are the ones that you can get click, click sometimes. The reason you get a lock isn't the, the, the kind of old-fashioned thought processes of the disc is just stuck there in front of the joint. What actually is probably happening is that you're getting to a certain point on the retrodiscal tissues. The tissues are so inflamed and uncomfortable that the muscles stop it and they go into spasm and they stop you moving forwards. So that's either spasm of the lateral pterygoid on the front end of the disc or spasm of the opening muscles, the, uh, the masseter temporalis, which literally, because it's painful, it stops you moving. It's like a limp. You don't on mm. purpose limp when you've sprained your ankle. And it's the same with your TMJ. Your body knows that it's going to be painful and it suddenly says, I'm not going to move there. And then your jaw deviates over towards the side where the pathology is and you get that restricted opening. So trying to release the muscle spasm, trying to, to offload the joint with your splint is going to help that patient in the initial phases. And probably you will get significant number of those patients improved with good splint therapy, good rest, and, and avoidance of that in the whilst you're waiting for a referral onwards. But yeah, don't don't hesitate to get the splint in there and, and kind of offload the joint, really. Do you think that kind of patient should be also going down the conservative care for six months before referring oh. to, to someone like you, perhaps? Or is that a warrant a referral to you to start also being involved in that patient's care? So I think the problem you've got in MaxFact is that there's only about a dozen of me around the country and there are about 300-odd maxillofacial surgeons who aren't comfortable providing early arthroscopy, arthrocentesis, and therefore what will happen is that they'll get referred in. The patient will be seen by often a junior member of staff who will say, oh, yeah, these need conservative treatment. Oh, well, they've been having conservative treatment. Oh, let's give it a bit longer. And, and they get delayed in the system. So it's about knowing who to work with as much as how to get that process going. And, you know, I'm not being demeaning to my colleagues. Some of them are brilliant cancer surgeons and what have you, and I wouldn't want to touch that side of things. But similarly, it's an awareness that you've got your own limitations of what you're comfortable with, then it's probably worth referring into somebody who does have and most regions will have one or two surgeons who have an interest in TMD management. And it's really about finding out who that is in your area and working with them to kind of get those patients referred into their clinic. At the moment in the NHS, it's a disaster regardless, because I don't know what it's like for you guys down there, but at the moment for a routine referral in East Midlands, it's like 40 weeks wait. Um, yeah, something and similar. PMD will be a, a, a routine referral. So, you know, you'll have a 40 week wait. And by that stage, they've missed the boat. Mm -hmm. uh, agreed. And this, yeah, like I said, similar uh, here. Uh, and just on the um, idea of getting, finding someone who's local to you, who can assist you as a general dentist with those uh, complex intracapsular uh, lock that's acute, but 
I think we still need to apply conservative care. That might be just a little bit different. And we'll talk about that when you we, when we come to the live courses, obviously. Uh, and, and that may help patients uh, a lot while they wait, especially if you get that lateral pterygoid to calm down. If you get that lateral pterygoid to calm down, a lot of those cases uh, will get better. Uh, and just like you said at the beginning, it's everything is a spe spectrum. There's no purely intracapsular, it's probably less purely intracapsular. There's always a degree of uh, muscular involvement as well. And one of my favorite analogies for the for the relationship between the condyle and the disc is that the disc is like a bar of soap, uh, and with the compression that 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 bar of soap can 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 right. slip. And obviously, there's that's a very simplified way of thinking about it. There's lots more uh, anatomical changes that can happen. But essentially, yes, when someone gets restricted opening and they and you suspect a disc displacement without reduction, my inkling is to help out. But I'm also thinking about imaging. So let's talk a little bit uh, about imaging of those patients who either conservative care has failed, good conservative care has failed. Uh, or they have disc displacement without reduction, before even surgery, what kind of imaging are you providing for these patients? So I'm probably a little controversial in my views on imaging. Um, I very rarely will get an MRI. The reason being that the MRI scanners we have in this country, first of all, the majority are 1.5 Tesla. And so you the, the views aren't that great. The radiologists a few and far between who are good at interpreting them. And mm. when you look at the best series in the world, you know, from, from the likes of the Ninth People's Hospital, um, Qi Yang's unit in China, even there, the accuracy of diagnosing a disc tear is about 50%. And mm -hmm. so if you base your surgical intervention on your MRI, 50% of the time you're going to be wrong. An audit that we've done, and, and Nad Saeed has, has similarly done a similar audit in Oxford, and colleagues in America have audited their practice. When you do an arthroscopy and you find a disc tear, a lot of colleagues would say, oh, you need to take the disc out. My feeling is, and based on an audit of 115 patients that we've presented but haven't published yet, 50% of them get better with a disc tear. And that's mm -hmm. mid-zone disc tear, which can't heal itself because it's, it's avascular. So if you then said, okay, well, I'm going to base a surgical discectomy on an MRI scan, 50% of the time it's got the diagnosis wrong, and 50% of the time you'd have got better with just an arthroscopy. So you know, 75% of your patients, you've taken the disc out unnecessarily. And that sort of data correlates with a couple of studies in the literature from um, Sweden, a chap called Anders Homland did a lot of work on discectomy and, and found that following arthroscopy, if you did a discectomy, about 50% of patients got better. Whereas if you didn't do a discectomy, if you didn't do arthroscopy, 80%, 85% of patients get better with a discectomy. So that means 35% wow. of patients probably would have got better with arthroscopy alone. So it mm -hmm. kind of correlates with all that. So you know, that's why I'm not a huge believer in MRI. MRI, in theory, if you take a good history and do a good clinical examination, the MRI will only confirm what you clinically know. I'm glad we're on the same viewpoint, actually, because I find as a GDP who's got an interest in this, 
difficult for my patients to accept having an MRI and going to London to, to, to have it. Um, there's a few people I know who, who, who do it, but they're few and far between. Uh, and a lot of time with my history and knowledge of anatomy, you can get you can suss out the diagnosis. Uh, so I agree with you on that. I'm, I'm sure there'll be times where something's just not quite right uh, and you would need to take some form yeah. of imaging. I recently had one of my delegates on a spent course in our Facebook group. He posted a case where um, acute pain on the right, limited opening with the deflection. So we were discussing, okay, we suspect disc displacement without reduction on the right side, but it's quite sudden onset. Uh, can we explore? So he referred on and they did take an image. Now I'll have to check, uh, I'll put this in the show notes, uh, exactly what type of imaging it was because I don't want to get it wrong. We know that uh, MRIs are good for looking at the disc and soft tissues. We know that uh, CBCTs are better for, for hard tissues, but they did diagnose a right side condylar fracture, uh, which, which was um, fascinating. And they were, they, they were surprised in the report that they wrote. So yeah, those kind of things, yeah, when, when something's really unusual, uh, then I'm sure you guys uh, would do that. But for many cases, um, it may not change your your management. Is, is, is that fair to say that um, yeah. with your differential diagnosis of that imaging, it may not change your management with the uh, presence of an MRI? I think the other thing that you need to understand about an MRI, have you ever, if you've ever had an MRI, you will understand. For my shoulder, I have, yes. Yeah. So it takes about 30 minutes. Yeah. How do you lie still for 30 minutes with your jaw? It's And then you... you you're trying to open a jaw into a bite block, which is an unnatural movement. You're not going to move past a point that might be painful. So if you had a painful click, you're going to stop before you get the pain because you're not going to hold your mouth for three minutes with that pain in that painful position. So you will often get an overdiagnosis of limited disc reduction from the MRI, mm. not because the radiologist has got it wrong, but because of the unnatural surroundings that you have with an MRI it, it, it you know and everyone that says oh well you get a dynamic MRI a dynamic MRI doesn't show a joint moving like that it shows a joint in that position for three minutes then that position mm -hmm. for three minutes then that position for three minutes and then they combine it to make it look as though it's moving and even mm -hmm. with that it's not natural so you've got to take your clinical diagnosis your clinical diagnostic skills to the level that you're thinking, okay, what's going on inside that joint? And you've got it in your brain, what movements are happening? And then you can use your MRI to confirm that. So one classic I, I remember, I got asked to go over and treat a, uh, a Saudi in Saudi Arabia. And this girl was the daughter of the hospital owner, multi-billionaire. Um, and the MRI showed an anchor disc. Uh, the MRI showed a disc displacement without reduction, and they said, oh, I think she needs a discectomy. And they had various people say that. I said, okay, well, no, we're going to do an arthroscopy. So I did an arthroscopy. On table, mouth opening went from 20 to 44 millimeters. Post-op, three months, mouth opening, 44 millimeters, pain-free, disc relocated on the MRI. That's an anchored disc phenomenon. But what the scan had shown is that the disc was stuck in front of the joint. So yeah. you've, got, you've got to listen to what the patient's saying, listen to your experience and, and work through that and think, okay, what could be causing this? And the anchor disc phenomenon is it tends to be under 30s. Mm -hmm. I'll always be aware of these younger patients with an acute severe restriction. Yeah, the majority of kind of teenagers, it's myofascial pain. Been caught out a few times with new diagnosis of rheumatoid arthritis or inflammatory arthritis. A few others that you you get this uh, acute severe anchor disc phenomenon, but 
a lot of patients under 30, it's muscular, but those acute severe restrictions, it's going to be an anchor disc before it's going to be a disc displacement without reduction. Well, that's a really great uh, insight. And just to add to an MRI study that was done, they uh, and I'll put the, the exact reference in the show notes, you're probably familiar with the study where they had symptomatic patients and they took an MRI, but they had asymptomatic patient, patients and they took an MRI of the joints. And they found that a quarter of, uh, it might be even a third, a quarter to a third of these asymptomatic group have a disc displacement uh, with reduction uh, and had pathology. Uh, and then um, about you know a third of the uh, patients with symptoms, had no pathology on the MRI. Uh, and what it also goes to show is that we very much need to respect the biopsychosocial model of disease. And just because those patients had a MRI diagnosis of disc displacement with reduction, they had some sort of pathology uh, per se, um, it didn't correlate to pain. And what what physical abnormalities or, or pathophysiology or, or, or problems, they don't always manifest as pain because pain is a very complex beast. Um, do you work with other specialists when it comes to pain management? Because I imagine that that's a big part of what you do. Please, please tell us more about your reflections on on the relationship between uh, an actual disc injury or, or a positive finding or lack of and, and pain. Yeah. So I, I think the, the first link you were saying about working with physiotherapists, the more treatments I've carried out, the more I've worked with physiotherapists. So I've got now about six or seven physios that I work with around the country. All of them are pretty much specialist TMJ physios. You can access them through the acptmd.com website. Um, and Krina, who is on the course, is one of those. And I work very closely with Krina. Um, I've got three around Nottingham that I work with, one now in Lincolnshire, a couple in Sheffield, and, and, and one other in London. So these guys are fantastic. And they're also good at emailing you back and saying, Andrew, I've done what I can. Please, can you put a bit of Botox into this muscle? Because I think mm. that that's something which is very good at breaking the cycle. The other thing with Botox is that it's very badly taught to dentists by and large. So it's injected too, too superficially. It's injected in the wrong places. It risks damage to the zygomaticus muscle, which runs from the front of the zygoma to the corner of the mouth. Because one of the areas of major muscle spasm is the upper anterior masseter just here. And if you try to inject that, it will leak into the zygomaticus, which is just next to it, and you'll end up with a patient that can't smile for four months. And so they mm -hmm. won't thank you for that. So, so when you're injecting with Botox, you've got to find where your muscle spasm is. And what I, what I say to all of my juniors is, you know, muscle spasm, teaching patients where muscle spasm is, you get them to feel the muscle firmly. And if they can feel a speed bump, they go over the muscle spasm and it's uncomfortable. And that is one of the keys to where the physio works is massaging that area of speed bump and running your finger over that speed bump for a minute, four times a day. It stretches the muscle. It helps improve the blood supply and it releases endorphins so that they get pain relief. Similarly, you look at muscle relaxant medications, low-dose tricyclic meds, which a number of my colleagues are very quick to jump patients onto, my, uh, onto those meds. I think you've got to look at less invasive ways of doing it first. You know, they are quite difficult drugs to manage. And if you're not used to using them, then really they should be managed by either the GP, who are quite used to using them for a lot of things now, 
or a pain specialist. And I will try either low-dose amitriptyline, nortriptyline, or gabapentin, pregabalin. And if those aren't working at that stage, I send them to my pain management team. And and the, I have a, about three pain management consultants that I work with that are very used to what I do. And similarly, they bounce patients back and say, Andy, could you put some Botox in this patient? I think that will help in addition to what we're doing in the medical management side of things. I think it's it's very easy to just fob patients off with muscle relaxant meds when actually it they need a more holistic approach to management. And with your pain management team, as well as cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, what other modes of um, sort of intervention uh, are available from the pain management side? So I think you, you've got to consider with these patients. I, I in a lot of my lectures, I draw three circles interlinked. And there's, there's uh, internal derangement, there's osteoarthritis, and there's myofascial pain. And then there's a double arrow feeding into all of that saying psychology. Because if a patient has anxiety or depression, they're more likely to clench and they're more likely to feel pain. If a patient has pain, they're more likely to become anxious, depressed, and clench their teeth. So it's a two-way cycle that you've got to look at. So you, there, there's the occasional patients. I treat two consultant psychiatrists. It's, it's always interesting having that feedback with them about, you know, you do realize that you need to see psychological management techniques and saying, yeah, we do these things and blah, blah, blah. But yes, you've got to interact with psychologists, with CBT therapists, with um, psychiatrists on occasion, and Kathy Fan from King's produced a very nice paper where they have developed a um, a tool which works, which works out all the patients that come into their TMD clinic get put onto this tool, and it says this patient is high risk of anxiety, high risk of depression, and then they link in with their uh, psychiatric team to to manage that side of the the problem as well, and. Then on top of all that, you've got the medical problems. So you've got the fibromyalgias, the inflammatory arthritis, which you're linking in with the rheumatologists. So it, it, over the 20 years of working, I've worked with more and more colleagues and more and more colleagues worked with me. And it, it was a beautiful working relationship in the end. I'm sorry I left it. And that's what it's all about, you know, multidisciplinary care. So it definitely yeah. is what it's all about. And I will, I'll put reference again to the OPERA study, which talks all about all those other comorbidities. Uh, and I'll put that in the, in the link as well, because uh, we discussed that with an episode of Krina a, a long while ago. So, so we've talked a little bit about the kinds of cases that should be seen a little bit sooner, the importance of conservative care, and you gave us some success rates. I love the 80-80-80 sort of um, uh, rule, if you have. Pareto principle comes to mind. Um, when you talk about arthroscopy, please describe to the general dentist, what is an arthroscopic procedure for when it regards to TMD? What are you actually doing? Uh, and what is the sort of uh, prognostic features? Uh, what are the features that will suggest, okay, this patient has a good prognosis or a bad prognosis from an arthroscopy? Okay, so arthroscopy is usually carried out under general anaesthetic. Um, patients don't need antibiotic prophylaxis. Orthopedic surgeons have not been using antibiotics for years and years and years for knee arthroscopies. The scopes we use, by and large, are 1.9 millimeter diameter um, and 30 degree angled. The scope I use now is a disposable 1.2 millimeter end-on viewing scope called an on-point. Um, it's smaller. It's easier to get into the joint. It theoretically causes less damage, but 
the risk is that sometimes you don't quite get into the anterior recess. The majority of pathology you see on arthroscopy is in the posterior portion or the mid-zone of the disc. Arthroscopy, realistically, unless you've got a disc tear, you're only going to see the upper joint space. So you will miss lower joint space pathology. But you basically distend the joint, you then put in the, the telescope, and then you look around the joint and you try and work out what's going on. The commonest thing you'll see is that there's folding of the retrodiscal tissues because they're stretched. And so when you open the mouth, you'll see this kind of little wave formation flatten out as you move the scope through the joint. And then the next thing you're going to see is, is there any inflammation on that tissue? Does it creep up onto the avascular disc, which is called creeping synovitis? And is there a hole in the disc? And you'll see that a, a chronic tear has a nice rounded edge. An acute tear is a bit more jagged. And probably an acute tear is more likely to heal and, and the patient get better than a chronic tear. Because what happens with a chronic tear is you get adaptation. You know, what we're doing as surgeons is facilitating the patient to get better. So we, if you like, we're helping God to get them better. We're not God. You know, mm -hmm. I know they say, you know, what's the difference between God and the surgeon? God doesn't think he's a surgeon. Um, <laughs> but, but basically what Love we're that. doing or what we should be doing as surgeons is helping the patient's body to heal itself. And so what you get from an arthroscopy then, and level one arthroscopy is literally putting the scope through the joint, looking around the joint, and flushing it out under pressure. You need to do it under pressure because it distends the joint. You need to flush out enough fluid. So you need 200 mils plus of fluid to get rid of the inflammatory mediators or those free radicals. And what that 200 mils starts doing is getting rid of the free radicals in the lower joint space as well by diffusion through the retrodiscal tissues. And that's work that Dorit Nitsan has looked at from uh, Israel that shows that less than 200 mil, you know, 200 mils is that kind of key 99.9% .9 of all free radicals are got rid of. 100 mils, you're looking at about 97%. 50 mils, it's around about 50, 60%. So you really need to be flushing through a lot of fluid. The, the pressure distends the joint and breaks down adhesions in the joint that are forming. And it also, what happens, what you see with a, an anchored disc is like little fibrillations where the joint surfaces have been stuck together and then pulled apart. And the way you can imagine that is if you put two surfaces of glass together with a thin layer of fluid and then you pull it apart, you can see those little strands forming. So that's what you would see with an anchored disc phenomenon. Level two arthroscopy, and there's realistically only one person in the UK that does this frequently, is putting a separate uh, scope in and taking biopsies and freeing up tissues. Level three is putting three bits in and hoiking the disc back. Now, state that there is no good evidence that level two and level three give an added advantage over level one is categorically in the literature. There is no evidence that added procedures arthroscopically give any advantage. There is likewise no evidence that open disc plication, pulling the disc back into position, gives a long-term relief of symptoms over and above dealing with any other pathology in the joint. So disc plication in the 70s and 80s was a common procedure. What happened was that five, six years later, the patient got clicking again. He did another disc plication. Five, six years later, it comes back again. By that stage, the fact that you've opened the joint two or three times 
you've got a degenerate joint. And so disc plication went out largely as a procedure through the 90s. There's still people who will do it regularly and state they get good outcomes from it. My own view is that I do it probably about 5% of my cases I'll do a displication. This is with open surgery. Of those, only about 50% of them get better. Whereas everything else I do, which is deal with, you know, if, if there's damage to the eminence, if there's damage to the disc, if there's damage to the condyle, I'll deal with all of those at the same time. My success rate with doing that is 80%, bizarrely. Um, as opposed to if you just do an eminectomy, your success rate's about 60%. If you just do a discectomy, your success rate's about 60%. So if you dress all the pathology in the joint with open surgery, then you'll get a better success rate. But if you do a displication, you probably won't. And it possibly is because you've got the diagnosis wrong. I mean, that that's a... I'm sure there must be, like there is with a dentist... Um, Difference in opinions amongst all surgeons, yeah. uh, and, and this is where we need more evidence in our profession to to, to know about these uh, you know long term success rates. But uh, a very good insight now when it comes to arthroscopy, as you mentioned, uh, and then you uh, place fluid inside to distend the, the the joint. Is that then classified as an arthrocentesis? So, i.e., arthroscopy is the exploration. Is yeah. arthrocentesis a fair term? Say that that's the flushing of the joint. Yeah. So, arthrocentesis by definition is putting two needles into a joint, and that can be one needle with two lumens, but two needles into a joint and flushing the joint through under pressure with a volume of fluid. Arthroscopy is exactly the same type of that, but one of those needles is an arthroscope. Got it, got it. Uh, and those patients who have a acute disc displacement without reduction, who maybe is in their 40s or 50s uh, and conservative care is not working, they've come to you. Is arthrocentesis uh, or arthroscopy the next step for those yeah. patients uh, largely? And then if so, uh, is it again an 80% success rate to yeah. unlock them? Yeah. So when I've looked at my outcomes, you know, I've got now a series of around about uh, 2,500 patients where I've got the prospective data of. And even when you look at that group and you classify them according to Wilkes stage, and Wilkes is still a con it's, it's the only classification system we have, but it's controversial. There doesn't seem to be a very clear correlation statistically that a patient with a Wilkes 5, which is a severely uh, damaged joint or deranged joint, does significantly better or worse than a patient with a Wilkes 2. The trend is that Wilkes 2 does better than Wilkes 5. But Wilkes-5 is like a disc tear, and so 50% of my patients with a disc tear get better. Whereas if they don't have a disc tear, and this is, a, again, a study which we've looked at, 596 arthroscopies, um, the risk of uh, or the success if you've got disc pathology means that about 9 I think it was 9% went on to um, needing open surgery, Whereas if there was no disc pathology, it's about 2%. That, um, that I'm going to have to boil that down again and look at all these percentages because they're, they're, they're very fascinating because essentially it's about helping our patients. And I think the first port call is to get them the right help with you uh, or, or, or someone who's experienced with that. Uh, and then these micro sort of diagnoses that are made uh, with surgical interventions, it's about getting the right 
treatment because I'm sure, you know, like you said, every surgery is unique that you do uh, and every uh, patient is unique and you will not just do one thing, you'll address all the things in there. That's why I was thinking in my head, okay, these percentages uh, as a general dentist. I mean, if you don't mind me asking, and this could be off the record if you, if you want me to, as and when we send patients to, to, to colleagues like yourselves who are very experienced in this and this is exactly what we want, we, you know, I think we want to be able to send, I mean, in, in my group of hundreds of delegates, right, we are desperate for people who, who who can help with this at the next level when conservative care has failed because my group of dentists are really good at conservative care. So I'm actually really glad to have found you uh, as someone to recommend uh, who has experience in this. What are the kind of things that we say to our patients in terms of uh, budgeting and fees? Because, you know, uh, this is something that, you know, with NHS is, is a massive waiting list and whatnot and you don't know who you're going to get. I'd love for them to be seen by you for my more complex cases who uh, conservative care has failed. What kind of, because I want to set my patient up I don't want them to come to you and say, oh, I can't afford this. Um, yeah. How does it work with insurance as you charge and, and what are the kind of um, uh, fee structures? So um, most of the private health care insurance companies cover all of the stuff to do with TMD. So a lot of my patients, Booper, AXA, AXA are a problem for me uh, because I'm not fee assured with them. But Booper, Aviva, WPA, um, Vitality, etc., all of their fees are covered. Some companies you'll have an excess to pay. Some companies don't cover the surgeon's fees. So for, for me, AXA cut the fees that they pay by 40% five years ago, and I didn't want to accept that fee cut, but that's my choice. Um, other other surgeons will accept the, their fee rates. So, um, But if you're privately insured, it is covered by and large, and the surgeon should tell you if you're likely to have an excess to pay you can find out who they're insured by on the PHIN site, which is a government site, which all surgeons have to submit their data onto. Um, and it says what they're doing and, and what they have. The problem with the PHIN is that there isn't a strict code for TMJ arthroscopy until recently. So um, on that site, I do a lot of ankle arthroscopy and a lot, a lot of knee arthroscopy because it's been coded as that. <laughs> That's changing, um, and you know, hopefully, it will become more apparent. But um, self-pay again, it varies between regions. So you will pay a lot more London prices uh, in, in Nottingham for a, a unilateral TMJ arthroscopy. It's around three thousand pounds. Bilateral, about four and a half. And it's usually a day case procedure. Um, so you come in. And that, and that includes the, the anaesthetist fees? That's everything in. Everything that's in. That's pretty good. That's yeah. that, I think that's pretty good. Um, yeah. I'm sure the figures are much meatier in Australia and the States. <laughs> yeah, they are. They are. Yeah. <laughs> okay. That's a really good insight to have, you know, because sometimes patients are insured. To give them a ballpark figure, that's really useful, uh, Prof. Yeah. Thank you so much for that. Uh, and... And the, fee, the, fee, the, the consultation fees will be on the PHIN site as well. Of course. Of so course. You, of course. That, you know, Mr. Cybottom charges £200 for his consultation or Mr. Evans charges £250 for his consultation and, and whatever. Got it. Got it. And then that's really useful uh, information for us general dentists listening to this. Um, last thing to ask you generally is, uh, obviously, I'm really looking forward to, to, to meeting you in the flesh in May and June to, to do the live lectures and you get to meet the delegates who are passionate about um, treating their TMD patients in general practice with good conservative care and maybe even you know, slowly inching with more complex intracapsular cases as they develop the practice, which would be a great help to you. I'm sure you're desperate for, for dentists who are good at uh, providing conservative care. So look forward to meet, meeting you live and geeking 
freaking out all about that. Right. And you get to see the, um, what, what we teach the dentists as well. Uh, what is the main message you want to send out to general dentists, all general dentists, when it comes to the, the successful management of temporomandibular disorders? Okay. Um, without swearing, don't believe a lot of the BS that there is in the uh, internet. Um, <laughs> simple management measures are largely beneficial for the majority of patients. So on my website, um, andrewcybottom.co.uk, there's a free to download information leaflet, which I recommend all my patients uh, download, which covers pretty much what I tell them in the initial appointment, which is, you know, first of all, it's not likely to progress the surgery. It's not likely to develop to arthritis. The majority of patients can get better with simple conservative measures. This is what, how, what's happening. This is what causes a click. The only things realistically we should be treating in secondary care are patients with persistent pain, restriction, or locking. And locking is you kind of get stuck as you open or you get stuck as you close, and that is happening relatively frequently. So I wouldn't tackle anyone with just a clicky joint. I don't want to know. They, they should just be told, yeah, you've got a clicky joint. That's fine. So 30% of the population, the vast majority of people don't develop problems with that. But you are slightly more prone to develop problems because of it. But just because you've got it doesn't mean that you're going to have problems. Yeah. Are you more in demand uh, after the pandemic in the sense that uh, do you think there is, uh, because of the stress and the change and the lifestyle changes and the work from home and you name it, do you feel as though uh, in your practice that uh, that these are resurfacing now? Yeah. I, I think everyone has seen an increase in um, TMD type issues um, because, as you say, of the, the uh, clenching and, and what have you, the stresses of it all. Um Obviously, my viewpoint is somewhat skewed because I'm dealing next door to a trust which has a 40-week wait. So before the pandemic, 10% of my patients were self-pay. Now about 50%, 60% of my patients are self-pay because they don't want to wait 40 weeks to get a diagnosis. Um, the, the other interesting thing, which is, is just an anecdotal aside, I've seen more facial cosmetic surgery in the last year than I have done in the last eight years. Uh, is that you mean like facial cosmetic surgery gone wrong zoom faces no you're <laughs> looking at their face on zoom and thinking oh my chin looks a bit fat my chin looks flat Ooh, look at my wrinkles <laughs> it's indeed the zoom boom uh yeah. thank you so much prof for thank giving you. up your time to to come on the podcast today really appreciate it. i think we covered a lot of ground today but like i said i look forward to uh, to meeting you uh, and going a little bit further for those dentists who are already a little bit inclined towards this so this will also help them but we're going to go a little bit meatier uh, and a little bit get, get into nitty-gritty so thank you so much for giving up giving up your time today not at all cheers there we have it guys uh, interesting perspective there but what happens if conservative care fails? Or what about those complex intracapsular issues? Thankfully, they're not as common as muscular. Muscular issues are far more common, which is why the splint course can help so many of you who are looking to delve into the world of TMD, but you don't want to go limited to TMD. That's what I do. I, I'm a restorative dentist. I like doing my rehabs and stuff. I like doing Invisalign, but I'm confident when it comes to TMD, TMD consultations. And I refer the really complex ones, which are intracapsular on, because the success rate is lower in those cases. So I'm very good at screening about success and how I can help the majority. And majority of patients just need a bit of TLC, education, physio, and a splint. That's it. Now, if you're looking for a live in-person version of this, 
it would take like three days for it to happen. But if you want a one day introductory live course, I'll be teaching with Krina Panchal, physiotherapist at the Dentinal Tubules Congress in October 2022, later this year in Heathrow. So if you want to learn more about that, go to protrusive.co.uk forward slash congress. That's forward slash congress. That will take you to the page more about our course, how to do a TMD examination, how to palpate the muscles, how to come up with a differential diagnosis, and how to work alongside your physio and which occlusal appliances to consider when. That's what we're covering throughout that day. And the Tubules Congress, if you've never been to it, is electrifying. Such a great atmosphere of dentists. The energy is just through the roof. You've got the best educators, you've got the best parties. So wherever you are in the world, if you want to come to, to Heathrow, London in, the, in October, join the Congress. It'll be amazing to see you. And if you want to book onto my workshop, it's seven places left only. So check out protrusive.co.uk forward slash Congress. I'll catch you in the next episode, guys. Thank you so much.